The Data Reaper podcast is a companion which provides extra insight into the weekly report found at ViciousSyndicate.com. Join us for a deeper dive into the numbers to help you improve your Hearthstone game. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Data Reaper podcast being recorded on August 5th, the day before the release of Skolomance Academy. I am your host, Ridiculous Hat, and I am joined, as always, by Chief Editor of Vicious Syndicate, Zacco. How you doing, Hat? I want it to be tomorrow, today, and the closest we can come to playing with the new cards is talking about the new cards, so very, very excited for the new expansion. Uh, and listeners, we hope you all are, too. We know that you probably came over here after reading the Theorycraft article that went up this morning, uh, and... We definitely will get a report to you as quickly as we can as well after the set release. We're currently targeting August 13th, a week after release, unless there are any changes to cards between the release of the set and that date. So we're targeting a week out, but we'll let you know if that changes. Keep an eye on the website as well as on our Twitter at twitter.com slash viciousHS. And we're going to talk about new cards. It's all we got to talk about today. Uh, new cards and the package they printed. We'll touch on the decks that you see in Theorycrafting the website. We're just going to talk about what looks fun. So let's jump right in. Start with Demon Hunter. Hey, Zach, you know what looks fun? Why don't we take the same deck we've been playing for a while and put in uh, two Mana Jeeves? How about that? That sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Voracious Reader, definitely a card that piques our curiosity and the curiosity of uh, many, many players. Uh, it's it's not a straightforward powerhouse, though. You have to build your deck in a certain way uh, in order to make use of it. So I don't think it's going to be like I don't think it's going to be an aggro meta where everybody plays a voracious reader and you know goes hard. But it's definitely a card that's extremely important to some archetypes, and it's a card that if it didn't exist in the set, I would have been a lot more pessimistic about several archetypes and classes that don't have access to card draw. This might be the lifeline that they need. In terms of Demon Hunter, it works well because Demon Hunter got a lot of good one-drops and turn one plays, both from its own set and the neutral set. So it can flood the board more aggressively and you know reload through Reader. And Reader is a card that I think works better with Skull uh, compared to Glide. Because uh, if if you draw both Reader and Skull, you can still play Reader and maybe draw a couple cards. Maybe draw one card. I mean, 2-mana 1-3 that draws a card is not terrible. Drawing two cards is pretty good. We don't need to draw three. But if we have Glide and Skull in the same hand... That's when things really get awkward, right? I think Voracious Reader just flows better with the Aggro Demon Hunter package, unless the meta has like multiple decks, like maybe Warlock, that just hoard cards in hand, and then Glide could be a little bit more relevant. If we actually care about the Outcast text, yeah. Because Glide, in the context of the set a week and a half ago versus now, looks so, so different. And really, Voracious Reader, you're right, it pushes your curve really, really low. You don't want to, you can't, you can't guarantee you're going to draw it, so you don't want your hand empty all the time, but you need to be able to make sure that when you draw a couple cards, you're not drawing fours, fives, and sixes. And a lot of what Demon Hunter got in terms of, like, the Soul Fragment package, 
I think is looking more towards a mid-range deck that won't be able to fit Reader in. Because if you draw a Marrow Slicer and a Lapidary, you're not going to be running those cards out together and, and cycling them away unless it's really late in the game. Uh, I think you can still put Reader in those decks. It just makes you a little bit... You just have to keep in mind that you can't just go wild with the, you know, with the number of heavy cards that you have. But then you have another problem where Reader might bait you into cutting threats and cutting your damage uh, to the point where you're just a deck that vomits cards and does nothing with it. Once the board is cleared, let's say the opponent clears your board repeatedly, you have no reach. Like, so cutting Adapt, for example, because it's a 5-drop, may not be the right idea because we still want the over-the-top damage. Um, so it's an interesting card. It creates some deck-building tensions, and we'll see how it works out. I think Demon Hunter has many different pathways it can it, it can get to. Personally, I'm far more excited with just playing like a, a slower Demon Hunter with Mystic and the you know just a cycle package and Mac Theridan because Mac Theridan works really well with Mystic, something I think that many players have missed. And you can just use the damage that you have from Marrow Slicer and Lapidary and Adapt in a shell that's a little bit slower and just deals tons of over-the-top damage. You don't necessarily need that early game to, to, to dish out that damage. So it's a win condition by itself. And the list that we have in the Theorycrafting article uh, where we run Double Jump with uh, Sigil Runner and... Uh, Spectral Sight, one of my favorites that we made. Oh, that's so juicy. And I really hope that works out. Yeah, that list looks so clean um, and just interesting and, and potentially a lot of fun to play. I'm not sure it's going to be good, but it's definitely interesting. It's it's kind of sort of like the Control Demon Hunter deck that we saw before, but it actually has some stuff to do. And when you add a three mana Dustbreaker, a lot of decks get better. Because Dustbreaker yeah. at four mana was nuts, and this, I think, might be easier to trigger. Or, well, maybe not easier, but once once you get the trigger condition set up, it's going to be, it just kind of stays active for most of the game. And honestly, Marrow Slicer, I think we would play Marrow Slicer if it had no text and we, it was in standard today. I think we would probably still put it in the current DH deck just for more consistent activation of Gladebound and eight damage. For a four mana weapon, it's it just such a it's just such a powerful combo. You know, I've I've heard of so many combos in this uh, for this set, right? You do uh, Muzaki and Sorcerer's Apprentice, and you play a bunch of one mana spells, and then you play a, a Cram Session, and then you play Missiles, and all of that, and then you know. In the discussion, we ask, okay, so how much damage does that do? And then people say, oh, the two missiles probably do like fifteen damage together. And then you have this really other elaborate combo where on turn four, we play the four mana weapon and on turn five, we play the five drop and we deal 12, 13 damage. And that's what Demon Hunter has, has a combo, two cards on turn four and five that shave off nearly half of the opponent's health. So that kind of four to five turns can be good in either a slower deck, just about dishing the damage and surviving. Or a faster deck like Agro Demon Hunter can definitely incorporate just those aggressive cards and deal a lot of damage. This is a lot of damage. It makes it that much easier for Agro Demon Hunter just to develop early 
do the chip damage, and then you've got the, the mid-game damage that kind of comes in replacing what ended up being nerfed in the last expansion. We had the Warglaves. It's a weapon that theoretically deals 12. We had Metamorphosis. But now we have an 8 damage weapon and 4 or 5 drops that together, if you count them all, have potential of dealing 18 damage from hand. They don't need to hit face at all. And it's just 18 damage and big bodies that the opponent has to respond to. So that kind of sounds scary. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's uh, there. The Demon Hunter combo is ruthless efficiency with face damage uh, in the mid game, and that hasn't really gone away. I will say that I'm grateful that the the aggressive archetype seemed to not get as much direct support as it got in Ashes of Outland, which was all the support in the world. Uh, but I will say I agree with you. These new cards seem like a pretty good fit into something that we already know was good. But I know what you're really excited about, Zacho. You don't have to tell me. I I can feel it. You're excited about Fell Guardians into Blood Herald, right? That's what you want to do? No. You're saying the token Demon Hunter isn't there yet? No, I think that deck is going to still be terrible. And they did print a new big Demon Hunter payoff, I guess, in, in Ancient Voidhound, if you really want to pit Commander it out. I don't. It's it, These are archetypes that are getting half-hearted support. It's such a strange card to, to put into the set and then not put anything else that supports that archetype. Like, it's it's a pretty good minion to cheat out, but I just don't see how the other 28 cards got better. And the best way that Demon Hunter has to cheat this out is another 9-drop. So it's not really cheating quite the same way. Demon Hunter, turn 9, getting to turn 9 is quite a challenge, I think. Yeah, you know what combo I want to do on turn 9? I want to go... Arrow Slicer, Lapidary, you take nine. There's a combo. Yeah. And speaking of cheating mana, well, I guess we weren't really talking about it because Demon Hunter's not going to do it, but you know what class is going to do it? The Druid class. So, in Druid, are you more excited to ramp or to mana cheat or to ramp and then cheat mana? Hmm. I'll take number three. Uh, I think Druid, even though... It's kind of strange because we don't rank it number one in our card preview. If you had to ask me what is the class that is most likely to be nerfed, I would say Druid. And that's because the scenario in which Druid ends up being strong is a scenario in which decks just find no counterplay to Druid. Druid has weaknesses. I think there are definitely some classes that can exploit that Feast of Famine ramp to turn 7 and then do crazy stuff. And Druid still has the weakness of big minions, and if the opponent can uh, develop more than it can handle, then it's going to just fall over and crumble before it gets to that point. But if Druid ends up being good, it's going probably to be going to feel very uninteractive, like a solitaire game with Kel'thas. Uh, and that strategy being the best, probably is going to get it nerfed uh, in the most likelihood. While other classes that may sit at the top of the meta may not uh, trigger that kind of response, that kind of an immediate balance changes response. But Kel'thas is definitely terrifying. Survival of the Fittest is the kind of card 
that can, if enabled enough, because without Kel'Thas, I don't see that card being as powerful. It's very reliant, I think, on being cheated out by Kel'Thas. But it's a card that carries so much value within it that a slower archetype is going to really struggle surviving through all of that, all of that overwhelming amount of stats, right? So a deck like a Control Warrior or Control Shaman or pretty much anything that's Control, once you play Survival of the Fittest, you're kind of in a really, really bad situation. So Druid is intriguing in how it's going to be built. You know, I've seen Theorcraft, um, you know, after we, we did all the Theorcrafts, we, we tried to stay away from other people's ideas. And then when you look, we saw a build that doesn't run Breath of Dreams, right? It runs a Nubisoft Defender, and it runs uh, Speaker Gilda, which is a card that could be very powerful in that deck, depending on how things shape up. And it's really an interesting question, because what would you rather have? Would you rather have the Anubisoft Defender, which is a card that enhances your power plays and makes them even stronger? Or do you want Breath of Dreams just to get to those power plays more consistently, just to have more ramp? So that's an interesting question, whether Breath Package is going to be the best way to go or whether it's better just to have more direct synergies with the power plays that you have. But yeah, that particular Kel'Thas Survival of the Fittest deck is very, very scary. Uh, it has some weaknesses. Definitely, I think some classes, especially Paladin, are equipped to potentially cause it problems. But if it ends up being very good, then, <laughs> then it ends up being very oppressive as well, probably. Uh, but we'll see. I, I don't know if we should uh, already be talking about balance. It's very speculative. It's all yeah. very speculative. But I do agree that survival of the fittest and guardian animals are the kind of cards that can potentially be this top-end limiter where they force everything else to be faster than them. Otherwise, you just have to... Because you can't outlast a survival of the fittest, potentially, right? You have to pressure the druid early in order to get it off. And there is a scenario in which there are enough decks that pressure it early that Druid doesn't become that big, prominent uh, factor in the meta that just keeps everything slower down. But it does have that potential. Uh, and, you know, it's always interesting to talk about it, but we'll have to see how it actually plays out. But when I said that Druid is the most likely deck, most likely class to be nerfed, it's because that if it's strong, it warps the meta in that way that makes it very likely to trigger a response from the developers. Yeah, that makes sense. And we, we really can't predict nerfs yet. It's way, way too early. We don't know how things are going to play out. You're right. They're absolutely counters. Um, and I'll tell you that on day one, in most of my decks, especially the ones that are looking to go aggressive, Cult Neophyte is going in a lot of my decks. The two mana three two that makes really? all spells cost one mana more. Uh, especially in Rogue, I want to shadow step that pretty badly. But you think about all of Druid's power turns from four through seven. If all their spells cost one more mana on any of those turns, then it it bricks their hand. So I am on day one as a tech for people copying a deck that they think might be really powerful and has some really strong synergies based on spells. Get him with a little three two. Just saying. On day one. And if you're playing Demon Hunter. You've got even a better option, which is Mana Burn. 
Ooh. Yeah. Indeed. You just deny, you play mana burn just before they're about to overgrowth. And I think that can put them in a position far enough that they can't recover from. Like, it's all about, if you if you deny their overgrowth in a critical turn, it can be the difference between winning or losing. So definitely Demon Hunter with Mana Burn has the, that, that potential. Paladin, we'll get to it later, why it can be Druid, etc. One mana, turn target Druid into a Shaman for one turn. All of a sudden your win rate goes way up. Funny how that works. But yeah, and, and the Guardian Animals package in particular, the reason why the seven mana payoff is really appealing is because we don't have to run Nerf Fungal Fortunes or depend on Glowfly Swarm or the Mount Cellar Swing turns. The deck just seems to get a lot more consistent. Um, but it's not the only way to build Druid. And Druid, there's this cute little one-mana minion. Gibberling. Gibberling? Is it Gibber or Gibber? Gibberling. I think it's Gibberling. Okay. Gibberling. Where it's kind of a one-mana Violet Teacher. And that seems abusable. And I want to do this on turn one. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> Gibberling is exactly the kind of card... You want in an aggro druid. I'm personally also excited for its possibilities in a slower druid. Though the thing is with guardian animals and survival of the fittest, I think if you're playing against that kind of Kelthus deck, you're going to have an issue. You're going to have to be faster than them. So, yeah, that card, one mana vile teacher is the best way to describe it. And that's absolutely nuts. You can have it on turn one and just vomit lightning bloom and a couple of spells and just get ahead so so far ahead your opponent just has no chance uh and voracious reader is a great fit for that kind of deck because you're very vomity uh so yeah definitely interesting the list that we build in the theory crafting article has skydiving instructor Whew. and dribbling as the only one drop so that you always put the jib uh, you always pull the gibberling. So you you have four gibberlings in the deck essentially. Your consistency in the early game and getting that gibberling off is is high, and since that's the most powerful card, that's what we want to do, right? Yeah, and three mana violet teacher still better than four mana violet teacher, and sometimes it costs one. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So something I noticed that's not in our theory crafting list: we don't have any forest warden omu decks. We're not we're not germinating. What do you think, uh, how much potential do you see behind that as a, as a combo archetype or combo shell? Uh, we tried building those decks, and they ended up looking very clunky and slow. It's just that it feels like a very slow way of winning games with Druid, and might be outclassed by a Survival of the Fittest deck. Omu de definitely has combo potential, but the fact that we need to run Germination yeah. alongside it and just use that 10 mana just to enable something feels very, very slow and clunky. It feels like one of those uh, druid win conditions that you often theorycraft about, but they end up not working out in practice. And druid has had a lot of those. Uh, every time you see a druid card, you immediately think, oh, Malagos druid is going to come back. How often do you, do you hear about that? Oh, this is Malagos druid. And it doesn't work out. Sometimes it does show up, but Malagos Druid needs something that is more flexible and faster generally. And Germination is a card that you pretty much never want to draw before. It's not 
super flexible of a combo piece that you can use earlier in the game, unless you're already ahead, right? You have a big minion on the board, you put a determination on it, then great. But if you're behind, you don't want that card in your hand. Yeah, it's uh, that makes sense, and, and germination just kind of does nothing on its own. So it remains to be seen. I do think, I hope there is combo coming, and what I do like about how Team 5 has designed the Druid set here the the Ashes meta was the mid-range meta to end all mid-range metas. Every deck was kind of just, it just morphed into this mid-range power turn thing. It sounds like Druid is going to be more towards the highly synergistic combo builds, and that means it'll be a little bit more vulnerable to aggro and maybe a little bit of a better counter to any kind of harder control or slower mid-range decks. It'll be nice to get that kind of variety in the metagame, I hope. I hope, but it remains to be seen. Now, we do have one kooky idea with Druid. And that is Quest and Runic Carvings for a full board. And I don't want to talk about every deck in a theorycrafting article, but I want to talk about this one. Because Speaker Gidra into Runic Carvings is spicy. I mean, Speaker Gidra with any high-cost spell it sounds really good in theory. Strangely, we don't have Gidra in the other list. And that could be a terrible mistake by us. Like One of the things that people said to, told us uh, in terms of feedback is, why do we give that card a 2? And my response is, um, you could be right. We could be wrong here. It's just that our evaluation of cards is often driven by our deck building. And that both can be a blessing and a curse. Uh, because sometimes we... Once you get to building decks seriously, you, like you work hours upon hours on building decks, you can find gems, cards that you didn't think much about. But then you end up just shoving them in every deck. And then you say, oh, this card is really good. It's a lot better than... When you judge it in a vacuum, when you look at it, your first response, oh, this, this card is whatever. But then, oh, this card just fits in and everything. And then you end up evaluating higher than what you know the average person does when he looks at it initially. And that caused us, helped us evaluate a lot of cards better than other, other people, other players. But the problem is that if you don't exactly get the deck building aspect done uh, in an optimal fashion, if you miss out on something, and it's definitely possible to miss out on things, then you may not evaluate a card as well as you could. Another good example, past example, was Blood Boil Brute. We saw Blood Boil Brute and we really, we saw the potential, but we were fixated on building it in a Galcon Warrior deck and Galcon Warrior just didn't look very good to us. And what Warrior ended up being is a class that produces two decks very, like, very late in the expansion cycle. Like, Enrage Warrior, Egg Warrior started coming in, like, a week, started showing up more a week after the expansion, but really started fleshing out, I would say, two, three weeks into the expansion. And then you had Bomb Warrior popping up over a month after the expansion launch. So Warrior had very, very synergistic, very difficult to optimize decks that ended up being successful, but were difficult to theorycraft. And that caused us to uh, evaluate a critical piece in those decks lower than it should have gone, right? And Gidra could be the same deal here, where we're trying to build the Survival Druid, and then we're thinking, oh, it has a lot of expensive spells, but in terms of play patterns, it may not, like, it ends up maybe playing most of these spells for free from Kalthus, and it's not going to play 
You're not going to play Guardian Animals. You're not going to wait to turn 10 usually. And the other spells are really cheap. So maybe you can't get as much as you can from Gidra. But maybe it ends up just being busted, right? But in Quest it's obviously busted from a deck building perspective because you have so many expensive spells that you're going to cast for the full mana and then that card becomes insane. Uh, Nourish, Starfall, whatever. And yeah, Burning Carvings is a card that produces a board and clears it. It's uh, it's a very versatile card in Questroid. Again, it's it's I'm not too enthusiastic about Questroid because it seems like a deck, a strategy that is too slow. If the survival of the fittest chaos deck ends up ends up being a success, it's probably going to be shelved out if that happens. But it's another idea that Druid could do and is interesting enough to to experiment with. Yeah, it kind of, uh, the Gidra kind of takes the Wardruid Lodi slot that Questruid was missing. You can't quite play it early as much, but we weren't looking to play anything early in Questruid. Anyways, I will say one note about Gidra. If your plan involves Lightning Bloom and Gidra in the same turn, play the Bloom first, because I'm looking forward to the Trolden, the first week where everyone feeds coins and blooms into their Spellburst cards. Um, but yeah, it's it's really hard to evaluate, and like you talked about context, I dug this up while you were talking, uh, the first version of Egg Warrior that Hunter Ace tweeted about was April 18th, 11 days after the set came out, and it included two Frothing Berserkers, zero Corcoran Elites, zero Gromash, and two Injured Tolvir, and that was like the prototypical version of the deck after No Hands had done initial experiments with it, uh, and it was starting to become more popular. That deck took a while to figure out, and... Your crafting articles aren't meant to figure everything out, but we think that there's something here with the quest route, even though that strategy, like you said, may not be the right fit for the upcoming meta. Now, we talked a little bit about Hunter, and building Hunter decks for that theory crafting article, like, well, we got Highlander Hunter. Well, we kind of got Face Hunter. I guess we could play Dragon Hunter. Anything else new look good? No? Okay. Hunter set is, I think, is very weak in terms of producing new archetypes, because the cards are just not not particularly dominant. They just don't look that dominant. They don't uh, give you the impression that some new archetype will arrive. Archetypes arrive when you, when you see a busted card, when you can build around a busted interaction, like a really powerful and oppressive interaction. Playing a bloated python on turn three, hoping it survives and then following up with a Machnathal line, this doesn't seem very dominant. So whenever we tried building a Death Rattle Beast Hunter, it just looked like so much worse than the currently established Hunter decks. And yeah, Highland Hunter looks great. It actually looks a lot cleaner now because you can just cut the Dragon Queen Alexstrasza. You have more one-drops. It, it, Hunter got a lot of... If it got anything good to set... It's a bunch of good turn one plays or one mana plays. And then you just put Dino Tamer Bran at the top, you put Siamat next to him, and you play Lorekeeper. And that makes you very likely to draw Dino Tamer Bran. And Dino Tamer Bran is the card that leads you to winning games. So you just build a leaner build, you're better in the early game, you have a better chance of contesting aggressive decks, and then you have a, a card that puts the best card in your deck at the top of at the top of your deck. So that has a lot of potential. Yeah, it's uh 
Lowering the curve and making the endgame burst more consistent sounds like a winning strategy to me. And you can just play Pole Kelt on six with a hero power just to guarantee you're going to have a uh, turn seven play. Seems totally fine. Yeah, we got like Demon Companion. I'm actually really excited to play with True Wayne Crescent. I'm not sure how good it's going to be. It's a very hard effect to evaluate. But I just envision a world where my Felma wakes up and goes face, and then I attack something with the Crescent, and then Felma hits it too. And that seems really, really powerful. The only issue that Crescent may have is that you're already running Desert Spear and uh, Stormhammer, and Stormhammer is a card that ideally you never break. So if you end and if you end up running a, a four charge one mana weapon, things could get awkward in your hand if you're running both of these weapons as well. So that might be an issue, but yes, that weapon definitely has a lot of potential in Hunter because it allows you to push damage while trading. And that can equal a lot of damage. Sometimes you really want to trade, but you also really want to go face because you're Hunter. And this weapon allows you to do both. Yeah, seems quite powerful. But I had the same experience as you when trying to build a Beast or a Death Rattle Hunter. With the Death Rattle Hunter... When you're when you're building the deck, you get to the four mana slot, you fill it out, you slot it in the Machnathal line at the top, and then you look at Death Rattles left and you say, am I really playing Savannah High Main in the year 2020? And then you delete the deck and go on and build something else. Happened to me, I think, four times. The biggest problem is Scavenger's Ingenuity and Machnathal yeah. Lion and Diving Griffin. Because you want to play Diving Griffin, you want to play Machnathal Lion, but you really don't want to turn to Scavenger's Ingenuity and get these cards. It's just, it's awful. Drawing a 6-3 a rush often happens in Highlander Hunter, and it's not too great either. But in such a deck where you really want to turn 3 Death Rattle, you really want to draw that Python, whenever you don't get that, you're going to not win the Hearthstone game. So, yeah, I, I really don't like the synergies uh, within that archetype from when it was introduced in Ashes of Outland. And Ingenuity is, it has the same restriction that we saw be so successful in, in recruit decks many years ago. When you have a, a card that finds you a specific thing, you almost always just want to do the one thing. You just want to get Zixor, right? And, and you can maybe make that into a phase stock or in a deck that's running two O's, but you run Ingenuity at his specific target because when you have a restriction that you can build around, you don't want to do the less powerful thing. I think Wolpertinger is definitely worth it. It's so good off of Ingenuity. It's the one card that you can put in Highlander Hunter with Scavengers of Juliet and feel good about it because it's a 3-mana 6-6. Six, six. So I think that card is good enough by itself, which is why we rate it so highly. Uh, but yeah, if you're playing a th if you if you pull a 4-drop or a 5-drop or a Savannah High Main off of Scav, Oof. it's awful. It's yeah. just, it's unplayable. It's just, you can't, as a hunter, do that kind of play. It's so anti-tempo, and you don't have good comeback mechanics, so you cannot fall behind. Yeah. But ultimately, it may not be a bad thing that when we look at the end of Ashes, we'll see the representation of hunter being so high. It's not necessarily a bad thing that it doesn't get quite as many tools uh, or reinforces the archetypes we already have. We'll see if the death rattle and beast strategies get more fleshed out over time. But as of right now, it's looking like Hunter is going to play the way that we've seen it play for a little while. You know, that's okay. Now, as far as a deck 
in a class that's going to get some more tools that maybe has some new archetypes, let's talk about Mage. And we can talk about Boring Highlander Mage, which actually gets a little bit more interesting. There are three legendary five drops, and I think there's an argument to running all three of them in Highlander Mage. Uh, but Jandis Barov might be the one that slots in the most easily. It's just a pile of stats. Yeah, I don't think there's any chance you play Mozaki in that deck. Because you don't have a lot of cheap spells, you really want... If you play Muzaki, you really want to be able to punish your opponent for leaving it up. And just playing a 5-mana 3-8 in Highlander Mage doesn't seem like a good idea. But Jandis is, is fantastic, because Jandis kind of makes up... You can think of her as a, a dragon caster power of her creation in one card. Obviously not as powerful, but it kind of puts the amount of stats on the board that just gives you a way... To, to to get ahead, to, to just swing the game in your favor. And yes, while one of the five drops is vulnerable, when you when we evaluate all the five drops that are available in the pool pool, it's very likely that one of them will have taunt or a death battle. Now if one of them has a death battle, you just put the vulnerability on that. And if one of them has taunt, you put the vulnerability on the other five drop. So if the opponent is not super ahead on board, Jandis is going to do work, and it's a perfect card for Highlander Mage. There are other cards that we think are good for Highlander Mage, like Devolving Missile, which is great at negating early game snowballing buffs, uh, or Combustion, which is solid removal. But yeah, Highlander Mage looks okay. Didn't get too many exciting stuff. Definitely not the exciting part of the Mage set. The exciting part of the Mage set is the whole spell damage synergies package. And Mozaki, obviously. Probably one of my favorite cards in the set, and I really hope that it ends up seeing competitive play, though it's definitely um, not a sure thing because uh, you need to surround it with a really synergistic package. Now, Mage does have that package. We've got Cyclone Mage, which is a deck that's not far away right now. Uh, you run Cyclone, you run Shinvala, you run Mana Giants, and that deck kind of runs a lot of cheap spells either way, so you just drop Mozaki on top of it. And suddenly that deck can, can deal some bursts with just Arcane Missiles. Uh, so we're not looking for an OTK, which is what many players are seeking to do with Mage right now. Like Potion of Illusion, uh, Sources Apprentice, and Argument Antonidas, and OTK. Or doing the same thing, right? But instead of Antonidas, you do it with Mozaki. These kind of decks kind of give me the vibes of, you know, something that's going to have a 5% play rate on day one and a 30% win rate. Yeah. <laughs> I could end up being very, very off with that, but they just give me those vibes. Reminds me a lot of uh, standard Exodia Mage back when the original Mage Quest was around, and you would see highlight videos. But the latter win rate was uh, questionable. Yeah. And Exodia Mage ended up being a tournament deck. Well, okay choice for some tournaments for some players. But uh, yeah, I'm not too big on that. I think Muzaki's probably better served just to be a big threat. Not an OTK threat, but a threat for, you know, drawing your deck with cram sessions. Kind of like an auctioneer kind of turn. Or just a nice burst of damage. 10 damage, 15 damage, or snowballing the game out of control can definitely do that. 
but I don't know about OTKs and Geppetto. When you start putting Geppetto in your deck, I'm going to start asking questions. Geppetto is the dream big card. You put it in, it's like someone someone has a scenario that they worked backwards from, and there's Geppetto can be powerful, can be, but also on day one, when we're talking about Voracious Reader decks, being the Potion of Illusion deck against the Voracious Reader decks is not where you want to be. Definitely going to be a problem with that. Yeah. But, hey, dreamers out there, keep on dreaming. We, we, more power to you. Someone will figure out something here as the meta develops, I'm sure. But I agree with you. I don't want Mozaki to be my OTK threat. I want it to be the thing I play in turn five and say, kill this or you die. Exactly. I think the fact that it has such good stats, eight health on turn five. Think about Malagos in Highlander Mage. It's not a threat. It's a 5-mana 2-8, but even if it's so awkward to kill when they play it on 5, sometimes you just want to kill the Malagos, even though it doesn't. it's not a threat by itself, it's just a 2-8 body. But imagine you put Mozaki on 5 in this kind of deck. You just play it on 5, kill it, or the game is over. So I think that can be something that Mozaki can shine in. And Cyclone Mage is exactly the kind of deck that can abuse Mozaki the most and not have a 30% win rate. So um, so I'm sure the thing about all your mage decks is they all have Trick Totem in them, right? No. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it's, I like a lot of the designs in the set. Trick Totem, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's a Shaman card. Let's just treat it as okay. a Shaman card. Yeah, it's, it's questionable impact, high variance, sounds about right. Um, all right, so let's move on to a class that is much more honest, kind of. Except for the new Paladin Barnes. Allura is kind of multiple archetypes by herself. You can cheat with it, or you can just kind of get value from it if you're already playing a bunch of buffs. Uh, we did a lot of stuff with Allura. We did a lot with Allura. Allura is a potentially game-breaking card. She is this expansion's Kelthus, potentially. Like, if you can abuse her... And abusing her consistently is a viable path, then she's going to do some serious damage. And what we try to do is to make her as busted as possible. And that involved doing some questionable deck building. And in Pure Paladin, we suggest a build that doesn't run Liberum of Justice and doesn't run Consecration. And the reason is because they're not very good Allura outcomes. So what if we put Blessing of Authority and we put Blessing of Kings, which works fantastically on Curve with Goody Two Shields, and just win games whenever we have a Lura in a spell? Like, sometimes she just casts a Blessing of Authority on herself and you just have a gigantic body. Then, yeah, and you can follow up with a certain two-mana 1-1 one, one that turns into those stats. Braggart? so good when you run a lot of buffs you can just snowball games out of control which is kind of why i think paladin could be a great answer to druid if druid becomes really strong so allura pure paladin what if we just cut all the removal and just put big buffs and make her always roll high or either roll high or roll well, but never roll something, uh, situational spells that 
is not relevant, might not be relevant for the board. I see a lot of potential there. And the fact that we have Braggart, which is another card that there was a card. I don't, I don't know if you remember a faceless shambler. Do you remember faceless shambler? That was a four mana one, one yeah. with taunt that copies the stats of a friendly minion. Braggart is a two mana one, one without taunt admittedly, but it copies the highest stats on the board. Wherever they are. Like, do you think that a taunt is worth two mana? I don't think so. And Faceless Shambler is a card that if even Warlock was still a thing in Wild, it would be played. So you have a two mana card that does the same thing or better than a Shambler. Because Shambler is useless if you don't have a board. In in an archetype that can potentially develop, I don't know, 25 stats on turn 5? On turn 4? And worst case scenario, worst case scenario, Argent Braggart also does not say friendly. So if your opponent has something big, you can just play Braggart and it copies your opponent's stuff. That, that's what I'm saying. You don't even need to be ahead. It's just nutty. I think there is a, there's a lot of potential here. Now, it sounds like that we're going to use a devout pupil is going to get a little bit less value if our spell pool is limited. But even if we only reduce this by a couple mana, it still seems pretty strong. Sunwalker would be fine at four mana. Pupil is better when you run Authority and Kings. You have more buffs. Like, Liberum of Justice doesn't activate Pupil. Consecration doesn't activate Pupil. We just go hard with Paladin. We don't go to the late game. We're not waiting for Kel'Thas to cast a Survival of the Fittest and, you know, Anubisat Defender, all that stuff. We're going to develop 30 stats on the board on turn 5, on turn 6, copy it with Braggart, and just win the game that way uh so that's the idea obviously if you don't want to go ham we offer a suggestion on how not to go ham but i'm saying keep your mind open to cutting uncuttable cards like liberum of justice in order to make that deck potentially better it just i think it's just a sweet idea and in aggro paladin you can also play aggro paladin and not pure and kind of do the same thing like I think Blessing of Authority is kind of might be a sleeper card that people are not giving enough credit. If you remember, we had a card called Bitter Tide Hydra. And that was a 5-mana 8-8 with a horrible drawback. Now that Bitter Tide attack face when she was played, no, she didn't have charred. So Blessing of Authority is 5-mana 8-8 stats that you cannot hit face on the same turn with. You just need an, a, a minion to buff. And Paladin's going to have stuff to buff. You're going to have sticky threats. You have goody two shields. So what happens when you just develop 5 mana 8-8 eight, eight on turn 5? I think that's something that could potentially be very powerful and worth thinking about. And not just say, oh, authority can't hit phase. And that means this card is not good. When, you know, we have minions that when we develop them, they don't have charge. So if you, when you put this amount of stats on the board, it's, it's worth thinking about. So what I'm hearing, Zach, is that in the Paladin deck, we should put in two Blessing of Authority and two Wisp. And then that's a 5-mana 8-8. Eight, 5-mana eight. 9-9. Nine, 9-9. Nine. Nine, nine. Even better. No, probably no Wisp, but yeah, if you're an aggro Paladin especially, you kind of, and you run Voracious Reader, you, you're going to vomit your hand, right? So you're going to have minions on the board. 
So you just take a minion, you hit face, you put authority on it, and you tell your opponent to deal with it. With the sunglasses thing. But, Zach, what if I don't want to go as low as possible? What if I want to go as high-end as possible? What if I want to play Big Paladin? We have Duel. We have Commencement. Can we do that? You can do that, but you're probably not going to win a lot of Hearthstone games. And the reason is that the thing that you can cheat out with Big Paladin is just not very appealing. I mean, you're going to have to rely on a bunch of neutrals. And yeah, Torellian is great when you duel it out and it kills the thing and leaves a 3-9. That's hard to ignore. But does that win Hearthstone games in the late game? Is that going to win late game matchup? Because the problem with like a, a big Paladin deck is that sometimes it just runs out of threats. Or sometimes it's just not fast enough to, to, to get under decks. And you just you wither. You just get withered down. You just they remove this minion and they remove that minion, and you're out of ways things to cheat out, and then you've got nothing. To, uh, I'm more excited about another big deck that we'll talk about later. But yeah, you can experiment with Big Paladin. It got some neat stuff, but I don't expect it to be very good. I'll be surprised. It'll be one of the biggest surprises if a Big Paladin deck becomes meta. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. You know what might not be fun? is playing against Galakrond Priests with the new four of that it runs, Mind Render Elusia. Because Galakrond Priest isn't just going to run one Mind Render Elusia. All those invokes. Going to go get another Hand Swapper. Uh, what are we looking at with Priest here? Galakrond Priests, okay. Resurrect Priests, maybe it gets a little better. Do we, can, we, can we do anything new and interesting in Priest? I think that Inner Fire Priest... An archetype that, you know, died with Divine Spirit. It has potential to finally be competitive. It has some really interesting addition. You've got, you know, Frazzled Freshman, which is the perfect one-drop for it. You've got Power Ward Feast, which is the perfect thing to put on a one-drop like Frazzled Freshman. You've got cards like Interpret's Initiate. And Interpret initiated one of these cards. And as I said, you look at it initially and you say, oh, this could be a 1-mana 3-2. And then when you go to the deck building phase, you just end up shoving it in everything. And you say, whoa, what's going on? This card is just going to be everywhere potentially. But yeah, it works fantastically well with Priest. And you've got Allura. And Allura in Priest could be just as nutty as she is in Paladin. Potentially, maybe even more, because you've got power infusion, you've got psych split. Imagine Allura casting a psych split on herself and having the copy. The copy, I believe, is not going is going to have the spell burst. Correct. So if you don't kill the second Allura, you can do that again the next turn and get another spell cheated out. So things can just snowball out of control. And Priest got power shield, and it costs zero. And that change for this deck ends up being a buff for Power Teal because having a zero mana spell is really important in activating Allura. And of course, you've got Elusia, which is a card that I think can be 
super impactful in Galakon Priest. And it's a it's a card that's a single card, despite the fact that I don't envision Galakon Priest to add any new cards, other cards from the set, perhaps except uh, Kel'Thuzad, which could be a neat uh, combo with Shadow or Death. Elusia could be the great equalizer, uh, where you just take out the most, you just waste away the most important pieces that another late game strategy has to kill you. Or against an aggressive deck, you play it on turn two. Let's say they have coin, you waste the coin, and they have no turns, nothing to do the next turn. They have your hand, which is a control deck's hand, and you just stall the game, waste the coin, whatever. You could just play on two against aggro decks and significantly slow them down. So, and yeah, and that card is probably going to be played in the Inner Fire Priest deck because in in that deck, you can waste your opponent's removal, you can waste your opponent's big power plays, you can get resources from your opponent, you can turn his threats into your threats uh, in the late game. So yeah, it's a it's a potentially super powerful card, and a card that players may not appreciate, because somebody, uh, I think Phenom, said in the Discord that it's like somebody breaking into your house and messing up your room and your kitchen and your living room and just flipping the sofas over. That's what Elusia feels like. Uh, so, yeah. It's probably a card that not a lot of people will like, but it has meta-defining implications. As long as Priest doesn't suck, right? Yeah. And even then, even if Priest is mediocre, if I'm going second and my opponent plays this on two and takes my coin and gives me a hand of mediocre Priest cards, I'm still going to be unhappy. And it denies a draw when you play it. Because you swap the deck, and then you draw from their deck, and then you give it back, and then they draw from their deck, and that means you draw zero cards. So It's it's definitely people don't talk enough about how powerful it is just on turn two. Yep. Especially if it eats the coin, because a, there are so many combos that people talk about this expansion where they pair Spellburst with the coin. Okay, imagine we coin out after we play, and then you take the coin away. That's unfortunate. So, Elusia is very powerful. I'm curious to see how Inner Fire Priest plays out. Uh, even without Divine Spirit, we do get some some big butts in the mid-game. There's something there. Now, Rogue, Valera almost always finds a way in a new expansion, but Rogue cards are typically difficult to evaluate. You know what card's not difficult to evaluate is Secret Passage. Because that card looks like one mana draw five cards. That card seems good. Yeah, Secret Passage looks very good. The only question is, how is it going to be used? Is it going to be used like an internal Zephyrus? Where you you're just looking for a better play, and you fish try to fish them out out of your deck, and just play Secret Passage on turn six, seven, get a good card. I don't know, get your Jandis and just play her, and you're happy with that. And I think that can potentially powerful be powerful. But then there's another idea that's floating around, of like, what if we treat Secret Package as like this gigantic call to arms kind of card where you play it for one mana on turn six seven and then you proceed to vomit all the one drops and the two drops you can you can afford to and throw all the damage that you can afford to throw uh so that's another idea that we also have in the theory crafting article that could be quite cool because the deck tops out at two the most expensive card in the Facey Secret Passage, where you vomit everything, is a two-mana card. 
Obviously, you run Voracious Feeder. So the play pattern of this deck is just vomit everything you have, play Voracious Feeder. Eventually, you find your passage and use that to either finish off an opponent with the damage that you have available. You even run Sinister Strike. Oof. Or you just reload the board with it. You run Sinister Strike, yeah. And you run Interpret and Initiate, of course, because that's a 1-mana 3-2 in that deck. And you even run Tour Guide, one of the nuttiest one-drops in the format. And people say Tour Guide is going to be good in Warlock, and I agree it's going to be insane in Warlock, and in Shaman as well, and possibly Hunter. But I can see Rogue decks, heavily aggressive Rogue decks, just playing that to have a Dagger on turn 2 so they can just poison on 2, um, instead of daggering on two, you dagger on one, you poison on two, play another one drop, and just shove it, shovel the pressure in, because hero powers are expensive for a deck that tops out at two mana, right? Yeah, and the dream curve can even be like turn one, initiate, turn two, tour guide, hero power, deadly poison, get you for six. Seems good. Seems, seems like small time buccaneer. Yeah. Now, this kind of deck could end up not working out. But I'm pretty sure that Secret Passage will be a good card. The only question is, how are you going to use it, right? Yeah, do you turn it into, is it a better tracking, or is it a better Solarium? Exactly. Is it tracking kind of card, where you're just trying to fish a better play, or a better answer, or just something to do? Or is it going to be this card that you build your entire deck around? So... I can see I can see both arguments. I'm fairly confident that at least one of them will work out. And the card will be something that Rogue will enjoy playing. So what I'm hearing is, if we top the curve at two, and that's the best Rogue deck, then we don't need to nerf Edwin Van, Van Cleef. Just leave him, he's fine. Yeah. It's just a three mana 2-2. Two, two. I've heard that before. So, if we, if we want to go old school and play Galakrond Rogue, do we get anything new in that deck? I know that we talked a little bit about Wand Thief in the past. And it, I also want to play Infiltrator Lillian and Jan Despairov. It looks like Galakron Rogue still gets some decent tools. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm personally, I'm pretty obsessed with Wand Thief. I think that card is just super interesting and super good for both Mage and Rogue. Maybe we're overestimating the card a little bit, but when you think about uh, Rogue One Drops... Uh, Cat is a card that has been a staple for Rogue ever since it was printed. And over the last expansion, it was really it kept being really good on turn one. But it kind of sucks later in the game. If you try it later in the game, it's just not as good. So we kind of play in the Galakorn Rogue list. We play one Cat and two Wand Thieves. Because we do one turn once. We want to have something to do other than Spy Mistress potentially. But later in the game, Wand Thief is so nuts rogue like you know people have uh, have talked about burger rogue and their wand thief is an absolute staple but just finding mage spells for rogue could be so valuable because mage has burn stalling things like ice barrier frost nova these cards if they were rogue cards they'd be pretty busted so if you can find some array of frost and rogue just imagine Oof. what you can do with it. Like, it's just the, the mage cards are insane in Rogue. I love that duel. I love the Rogue Mage duel because it's so appropriate, even though they, in lore-wise, they do different things. Both of these classes kind of have 
great synergy together. So I think One Thief is a card worth experimenting with. And obviously in the mid-game, uh, Lillian is fantastic. I think it's going to be a fantastic card in Galakrim Rogue. It's going to be... Uh, Jantus is going to be even better in Rogue than it is in Mage because Rogue is much better at keeping the opponents off the board. You play Jantus into an empty board... Like, imagine you're playing against Druid, and you're playing Jandis, and they sit. They don't have anything. Are they going to waste the hero power guessing, hitting fa using your own face to hit a 5-drop, hoping it dies? Like, it's just so much damage, potentially. And you have Shadow Step, you have Witchy Lackey. I think it's fantastic in Rogue. And no, we don't need to do... We don't need to run Devoted Maniac. Uh, especially after the Galakorn nerf. Because... We don't need to fully upgrade our Galakon anymore. It's not as big of a play. And I've also seen ideas of running Lorekeeper in Galakon Rogue. So you can put Galakon at the top of your deck and play Galakon. And then draw one mana Kronks and Togrago and all that. And that can potentially work out. The thing is, I'm less enthusiastic about it than in Hunter. Because when you play Polkit in Hunter, you get the Dino Tamer brand. You don't need any setup. You just play it. And it does what it does. But if you draw Lorekeeper before you fully upgraded your Galakorn, especially when we run six invokes now, it's not going to be fully upgraded that often. So making that play could be risky in Rogue, especially when combo activation is very important for Rogue and you want your cheap cards and you want your Eviscerates and Burn. It could end up being a liability. But we'll see. You never know until you test it in the flesh. Exactly. And there are some cool synergies with Burgle Rogue. Couple things I'll note here. If you want Thief into a Mage Rogue combo card, uh, like a Brain Freeze or Potion of Illusion, it will not tick the Rogue Quests, because they are Rogue cards. But, if you play the Rogue Quest and you go Clever Disguise into Secret Passage, the two cards tick the quest when they go into your hand from the first cast of Clever Disguise, and then when you Secret Passage put them away, when you get them back, when Secret Passage is done, they tick the quest again. So theoretically, yep. you could activate the quest if you go quest, coin, prep, clever disguise, secret passage, turn one, quest complete. Now, you probably don't want to do that, but you could. But you could. Now, you definitely could. Quest, quest Rogue was one of the decks that kind of didn't make it to this article, but we really wish we could have space for it. Because I think it is interesting, and One Thief is a is a great card for it. And yeah, the combo you said, you can just do Clever Disguise and Secret Package, and that's it. You complete the quest. Yep. Just by with these two cards. So, definitely interesting. I'd rather complete the quest with Ray of Frost, because that sounds absolutely filthy. Now, we should talk about Shaman. Because Shaman might have decks. It might be a thing. And Diligent Note-Taker is a crazy card. Yeah, especially when you have crazy zero-mana spells to go along with it. Like... People are not talking about it enough. You know, most of the hype has been about spell damage shaman, you know, from the theorycrafting streams. And I could definitely see that deck working out. It's got some interesting synergies. Definitely Rune Dagger is the all-star of that deck because it just allows you to activate your synergies without needing a board. You don't need a spell damage minion to stick when you're playing shaman. And I think that might be the most valuable uh, tool that the archetype has and provides it with the best chance of being competitive. But Totem Shaman got two mana, give 
your minions, your totems, for attack permanently. A bloodlust, a better bloodlust, for two mana with no taker totemic surge. That's insane. In, in, like, when you think about it, that's insane. And when you have the stickiness of Totem Goliath and you've got Runin carving, Carvings, then there's definitely something that can be done with uh, Totem Shaman. And, you know, the deck, just look at it, it's very clean. It's just very... It, it definitely was missing something in Ashes of Outland. And I feel like it was added, it was given... A few cards that could make a big difference. And what I like about it most is that it's good against Druid. Right? So if Druid ends up being as scary as it might look, then Totem Shaman could be a deck that exploits it. Because you can't sit around and be passive against a Totem Shaman. Like, what does Druid do? Or what does any deck that is fairly passive when you play a Totem Goliath against it. And that's followed up by a Reflection or a Splitting Axe. That sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah. Uh, the the deck I wouldn't want to play against is any deck with Ray of Frost specifically. Because Ray of Frost is, you know, it's good in that particular scenario. But otherwise, it's just kind of a, a body in a box. It's kind of a Soul of the Forest or Soul of the Murloc and a threat. And reflecting a Totem Goliath is really scary. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know what was happening in playtesting, but very clearly the overload on Totem Goliath says you cannot bloodlust the turn after you play this. That is very intentional, unless you have a Lightning Bloom. And I, I wonder if it was powerful enough that it needed that text. It kind of surprised me. But I guess you really don't want that wind-up punch to be that consistent. With that being said, Note Taker kind of makes all of your buff spells so much better that I think there will be plenty of wind-up going on in the early game. Uh, like, there's Totemic Might, there's Totem Totemic Wrath, Storm's Wrath with this card is a 4-mana four 4-5, four and your entire board gets plus 2, plus 2. Seems kind of crazy. Yeah, it's really powerful with, like, super cheap spells. It becomes more difficult to use if, like, you're using it to combo, like, a 3-mana spell. It gets a little bit more awkward, but it really shines when it's, like, 0-mana, 1-mana, uh, no-taker. Uh, fantastic for the, that kind of deck. Um, but yeah, but Shaman is kind of an unknown commodity. We don't know how good it's going to be. Uh, there's some question marks. We even struggled to build a third deck. And you kind of helped us out. Like I came to you and said, I can't find a good third shaman deck. And then we came up with this quest shaman that looks really cool. Not sure it's going to be good. But personally, I like the idea of just bursting my opponent down with a ton of damage. Not necessarily in spell damage shaman, but with just battle cries. So we've got that idea floating around. And yeah, Shaman on paper doesn't seem like the best class. But it has some things. There are reasons to be optimistic for Shaman. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. It got a lot of really cool got a lot of really cool support cards. And we don't know if like the rune dagger into molten blast curve is gonna get us there, but we know that we want to do it on day one. It'll be fun. I do also really want to play this quest, Shaman. I don't know if it'll be good either, but I know that it's going to just do so many cool things that it'll be very entertaining to pilot, even if it's not quite good enough. I don't know if it keeps up with the reader decks. I don't know if it keeps up with the ramp decks, but it looks fun. I think the most obvious thing about Shaman is that control Shaman is probably not going to be a thing. No. If you're playing Shaman, you want to be low curve, 
you want to be relatively quick, you want to snowball pretty hard. Shaman doesn't have a late game. It didn't get a late game in this set. There's nothing really... I mean, Tidal Wave? Really? We're printing that card when there's a Walking Fountain available? Why would we ever do that to ourselves? And yeah, Shaman just doesn't have a way to win on the late game. So you're going to be all about snowballing early and building into the mid game and trying to finish opponents off, whether it be Totemic Surge, whether it be burst damage um, through minions or spells. But probably you're not going to be this control thing. Probably not. It's really, Control is looking like it's going to have a hard time surviving, given the nature of this metagame. It sounds like we're talking about aggressive decks, more combo-based decks, and then some other mid-range decks that maybe can handle some of these power swing turns in the mid-game. But this environment seems pretty specifically crafted to propelling games to a conclusion, as opposed to making them longer. Which, maybe not a bad thing, but for those of you Control fans, uh, this may not be the meta for you. Now, with that being said, we do have a cool mid-range deck in this next class in Warlock. Zach, are you a Soul Fragment believer? Yes, I am. I think this package, as good as it is in Demon Hunter, and I think it could be very good in Demon Hunter, in Warlock, it's just perfection. You know what perfection is? Perfection is Soul Fragments in Warlock. That's what perfection is. I think this package... Cards like Void Drinker, Flesh Giant. I'm I'm sensing the return of Handlock. I'm I'm feeling it. Ooh. I'm I think that deck looks so good on paper that I'm going to be very disappointed if it ends up not panning out. But I'm seeing play patterns where Flesh Giant costs three mana by turn five. It's not that unlikely. I'm seeing. Uh, I'm seeing turn four Twilight Drake into Void Trinker, into Abyssal Summoner, and I'm thinking, how many classes can deal with that? I'm not sure. I th and I'm also seeing, I'm seeing this aggression right in the mid game that Handlock has always been famous for, but I'm also seeing an insane removal package. Like, think about any aggressive deck that needs to play against Handlock. You've got like three different AoEs. You've got six AoE cards that you need to play around. You can't play around all of these cards. You've got four early game removals. So early game minions are unlikely to survive against Handlock. If you have like a big one drop or two drop that you really want to stick, uh-uh, not against Handlock. And if you're flooding the board, Handlock just has so many possibilities to just clear it. And it's just, it's going to feel like you're never going to run out of it. And then you've got the Artificer on top of it that can do a turn 5 Flame Strike. And you still have a Crazed Netherwing. So you when you add the Aggression tools, and then also the Defensive tools, that's when Handlock shines. If you remember even Warlock, it was a very similar deck to this one. You got the Life Taps early. Now we can also Life Tap for one with Turgine, so it's kind of an even lock thing that feels very much like that archetype. And we've got the big bodies, the threats uh, in the mid game, and we've got great survivability. We've got healing, we've got AoEs, we've got single target removal with Brittlestone Distorer. On paper, this deck looks perfect. 
in practice, we'll have to see. Uh, but yeah, I think there's 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 a lot of potential there. Yeah, I I see a lot of really cool things that I want to do with Warlock and looking at Sociologist Militia, the the high end handlock card. I wasn't convinced in this card at first, and then I I asked myself if Exotic Mount Seller always summoned Rush minions, how crazy would that be? And even if you just get two three threes with Rush, it's fine. But we are probably going to get more than two three threes with Rush. I think we'll get more than that. Yeah, I, I've seen I've seen players. Don't rate militia that highly, and I can understand where they're coming from, but I feel like it's a card that's being underrated because of how expensive it is. Like it's seven mana, but when you compare it to Mount Seller, it's a pretty good comparison. Obviously, Warlock doesn't have the ramp to get to the turn seven, but the outcome is a lot more consistent than in Mount Seller. The rush minions are bigger payoffs than what Mount Seller gets. You can get like four rush minions. Imagine that. And it's also really good, not just against aggressive decks where you just wipe their board clean and just develop stats. It's also a lot of pressure. Like you play that on an empty board and summon four of these. Like you, your opponent either clears or it, he dies. It's 17 attack. 17. And when you have combined that with the burst that handlock out, you've got a lot of cards that deal phase damage. You've got Netherwing, you've got Netherbrath. We've got the new uh, the new 3-4. The 3-drop. The yeah. yeah. You've got a lot of damage that can go phase. So Handlock doesn't need to do a lot. Like just a couple of swings with big minions or big piles of stats and you're gonna get there. So I think Militia is definitely worth it. We'll see. Another card, a 7-drop that I really like is Valdris. Because if you discount the Flesh Giant fast enough, you can get to a point where Valdris can just draw you a 0-mana Giant. And then playing a 7-mana 4-4 is not that bad of an idea, especially if you can draw Soul Fragments in the process and heal yourself. So imagine like a 7-mana 4-4, draw 4 cards, heal yourself for, I don't know, 2 or uh, 4 or 6, and develop a 0-mana 8-8. That sounds like a really strong turn. And also can help you find your burn to finish games off. So that's another card that could be very strong in this archetype. Also enables Abyssal Summoner very well. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, this deck looks very clean. I want to play this right now. I want to pl- I want to do all those things right this very minute. Yeah, it's and it's going to be a more consistent play pattern, I think, than Quest Warlock. Though you could play the Soul Fragments into in Quest Warlock if you wanted to, but... That deck doesn't really have as much room. It's pretty focused on what it wants to do. This seems like it's just doing really powerful mid-range things. And Void Drinker is just an Earth Elemental with no Overload. Like, we'll do that. That's okay. Yeah, and if the meta asks you to pressure early, then Handlock is definitely going to be a better choice than Quest Warlock because Quest Warlock, you know, fools around for like six turns before it does anything. And even then, it's a very slow deck. So Handlock seems like a lot faster and gets in your face a lot earlier and that could translate well in the in this meta and you know if i'm a warlock and i also want to pressure early what about this card flame imp because we could do flame imp seems good flame imp seems pretty good especially when it can discount flesh giant like you know we keep thinking about flesh giant as this handlock card but i think the zoo can also play that card because you have a lot of self-damage mechanics 
you can play things like Raise Dead, and you've got Disease Vulture, and Brittlestone Destroyer can act like a Vile Spine Slayer. Like when when fast rogue decks played Vile Spine Slayer, it doesn't you know Brittlestone Destroyer is not necessarily a control card because it's a tempo. It's a tempo card. Four mana three three destroy a minion can definitely be inserted in faster decks. So you you can see a self damage zoo build that's kind of mid rangey with a lot of big bodies. But then there's another approach. What if we still have a lot of small bodies? We build our zoo deck small, and we kill those little bodies and turn them into four fours in the mid game, and that's where gambling comes in. And that card, in a lackey build, it's going to be nuts. Yeah, uh, Gandling seems like just a... I'm not even going to call it a backup to Khan, because Khan on 5 is kind of weak, whereas Gandling on 4 feels pretty strong. I like the idea of playing an on-curve threat at 4-mana 3-6, which is a stat line that is perfectly respectable. We've seen it many times. And it also just upgrades a lot of your minions. Those 1-drops that get kind of useless late game, your beaming sidekick is now... Plus two, it's a one mana four four. Same effect. It's basically like you get another scrap imp. Gandling is almost like a third scrap imp as opposed to a second to yeah. come. It's a card that doesn't necessarily have synergy with scrap imp unless it gets buffed and then it's hard to remove. But if you kill a buff minion, you still get the four four. So the the sacking ability isn't that amazing when you have a scrap imp already. Feels a little bit redundant, but that's what you want. You want redundancy. If you don't draw Scrap Imp, Zoo is kind of doesn't do anything very intimidating. So having another opportunity, another tool that gives you that big turn, that power turn, is, is going to be very important for that archetype, I feel. Uh, because right now it's Feast or Famine. You either draw Scrap Imp or you're just looking pretty weak. Uh, so yeah, that Zoo can definitely be an intimidating archetype uh, in Skullman's Academy. And overall, Warlock just looks pretty good. I'll be surprised if Warlock just whiffs on multiple archetypes and builds and nothing ends up panning out. I'll be a bit surprised if that happens, but yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, promising opportunities for the class. Yeah, and the best Warlock card in the set may just be Tour Guide because you get a Kobold Librarian on turn one, and on turn three, you can't go, uh, you can't play. Tour Guide and then tap, but you can tap and then play Tour Guide and make your next tap free. So in a lot of ways, Tour Guide is really going to enable a lot of these self-damage archetypes. I think Tour Guide is not only nuts in the immediate term, like nuts right now, and going to be a staple for multiple archetype. In the future, every deck that ends up changing its hero power to something that can be very powerful, which is a mechanic that Team 5 likes to design, you're going to think about Tour Guide. In Quest Shaman, you're going to think about Tour Guide. So anytime you can bank a powerful hero power for a next turn, for some setup, you're going to think about that card. It's so nuts. It's such a nutty print to put in a neutral. It's extremely influential. Okay, so what you're saying is we should put Tour Guide in Quest Druid. Maybe not. It'd be good on turn two. Later game. I don't know. We weren't playing, paying a lot for that hero power anyways. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Tour Guide, one of the more powerful one-drops they've printed in a while, on par with a lot of the cards we're playing now. You think about 
Guardian Og Merchant is narrower. Blazing Battle Mage is, is an aggressive card. Tour Guide is kind of universally applicable. You kind of just want to put it in, yeah. in almost any deck, and it helps the aggressive strategies almost as much as it helps the slower ones. Yeah, it's just super versatile. Yep. Now, we've got one more class to talk about, the Warrior class. Zach, I had an idea for this class. What if we took Risky Skipper and Blood Boiled Brute and put them in the same deck? How does that sound? Sounds like a pretty good idea. Turns out it took about a couple of weeks for uh, players to figure that out in Ashes of Owlland, but I feel like it's going to take less than that in this expansion. Especially when you have a car like Lord Barov. Yeah, that Pyro Equality as one card does seem pretty good in Warrior. In Paladin, it's much harder to use. But in Warrior, Skipper Barov is a board clear. Barov into Skipper into any other one drop is a one-sided board clear. Now, you got to be careful if you play two minions and the Barov goes off and it kills your Skipper. But there are a lot of ways to abuse it, and there's a half-price Rampage. We used to pay two mana for the effect, and now we pay one mana instead of three health to get a bubble. And that can even be better sometimes. That card can be a massive upgrade on Enrage Warrior. Like, you can now run all four buffs. You know, our build is a little bit maverick. We we actually cut cash. <laughs> and we explained why. Because cash... Yeah, because the, like, the early game cash opening got so much worse after the patch. And it got worse and worse as time went on. That we think that you might consider cutting cash in this expansion because when you have Shield of Honor and Rampage, you really want to snowball early through a buff minion, right? You really want to put that on a War Mall Challenger. The problem is you only have two copies of a War Mall Challenger. So our suggestion, why don't we play 12 years? Play turn two 12 years when you have four follow-ups instead of two. You multiply your follow-up by two. That card becomes consistently intimidating. You just buff it, and you, you play Bloodsworn, and you sometimes just win games with with that card, you know. But, you know, I can also see eggs being played, other experiments. Uh, another card that's very interesting to experiment with in Enrage Warrior is Troublemaker. So Troublemaker, think of it, compare it to Grom on an empty board, right? So Grom, you need an activation, you need an Inner Rage. You probably want to save your Inner Rages for Corquan more now, or for the early Rampage Divine on our openings, because uh, Corquan combos are going to deal more damage, have more reach with Shield of Honor, and then, since you're running a lot of buffs, you really want activation. So the Grom might not be as good as a card that deals 6 immediate damage to your opponent's face if the board is clear. Uh, it produces... Like, <laughs> how many stats? Tons of stats. Tons of pressure. And since you have so much reach uh, with your burst combo, it's very hard for your opponent to kill the Troublemaker, which has 8 health, kill the small uh, ruffians that it spawns, and somehow stay out of your reach. So Troublemaker will be interesting to see whether it's too slow for that deck because it wants to play a lot of cheat cards and get very fast, or is Troublemaker just discard? That's so nuts on turn 8 that it's just worth putting in every deck. And we kind of put in every warrior deck. Uh, we also put it in Bomb Warrior. And in Bomb Warrior, we're more confident that it's going to be a thing. Because that deck is just starving 
for a strong early game finisher. We're playing Grom now because we need a finisher. We're playing, you know, Greenskin in order to have more reach in order to finish games. And yes, we've got the Blastmaster Boom. We've gotten the inevitability of the bombs. But Bomb Warrior is a deck that can use Bearoff even better than Enrage Warrior. Because you've got so much activation. With Enrage Warrior, you only have Skipper. But with Bomb Warrior, you can cast a Sword and Board on it. And it's a full clear for four mana. You can, at a pinch... Use a blade storm to clear your whole board, and then you're much more likely to survive. You also have a brawl. You're a very good deck at keeping the opponent off the board, so it's very likely that the opponent will not have any minions on the board. And in that situation, Troublemaker ends games. So I'm really looking forward to Troublemaker and Bomb Warrior, and think it has great potential. Only issue for that archetype is if Kelthas Druid is going to be super powerful, survival of the fittest, going to be a painful card for slower warrior decks. Yeah, it's just kind of this perpetual threat that is going to be difficult for decks to keep off the board when warrior is so good at board control. Um, and Bomb Warrior, I think, if people are churning through their decks, if people are playing Valdris Felgorge, you want to draw soul fragments, they make your life total go up. You don't want to draw bombs, they make your life total go down. That's my expert analysis. I think Warrior is just well-situated. When you think about also all the aggressive decks and the burn decks, you know, people are running, thinking about running spell damage decks and aggro decks with Voracious Reader. Warrior really lines up well against that. So I think Warrior is in a good position to be a powerful class. I'm not sure if it's going to be the best class, but it's probably. I'll be very surprised if it's going to be weak. I'll be shocked if Warrior ends up being weak. But Warrior doesn't just have these two archetypes. We also kind of fooled around with other archetypes, ended up uh, with a big Warrior list that we kind of like. Now, the thing is, people looked at, you know, Rattlegore, and your immediate reaction is, this card sucks. It's too slow, it's too weak, it's, it's awful. Like, you're going to spend nine men on that? Not ever. But if you cheat it out with Commencement, if you duplicate it with Dimensional Reaper, if you're playing against a late-game strategy, like a control deck, what the hell does it do against a Rattlegore? I mean, suddenly Big Warrior is this archetype that has inevitability. Like, you have so much threat density with Troublemakers too. So maybe that deck is not as big as a meme of it looks. Probably is going to be a meme, but maybe it's going to be a good meme. Uh, yeah, Rattlegore was not a card that I envisioned seeing in our theorycrafting article, I'll be honest with you. Me neither. If you commence it out on turn 7, or you rip out two of them on turn 10, that's a lot of stuff. And that's kind of difficult to deal with. So, I, I don't know, I can see it. I think this probably lands in the quest shaman territory of, don't know if it's good enough, but it's cool. So let's try it. And also, we were really pleased with ourselves. Putting Sphere in a deck. Sphere of Sapience. Yeah, oh because that card actually makes sense in that deck. Because let, let's say you play the Sphere early, you can get it off cash, and you end up being given Rattlegore, and you just shove it at the bottom. You make sure that it gets... You make you increase the likelihood that as the game goes on, the, Boom Reavers, the Doom Reaver is going to cheat it out, a copy of it. The Dimensional Reaper is going to hit it. So you just have threat potential suddenly 
in big worry. And you also have decent survivability. So we'll see what happens with that. Sounds to me like we're playing a bad card to put our other bad card at the bottom of the deck so we don't draw it. That's what this sounds like. And I'm in. Yeah, let's, let's put that card at the bottom. And the best thing about cash on Sapiens? Attacking for one five times. Let's get him. Insane damage. Almost as good as a Marrow Slacker or a Lapidary. Almost. Almost. What's interesting is that there's, there are so many weapon synergy uh, cards in the Warrior set in this expansion, and the weapon deck just doesn't feel complete. There's, like, Dr. Krastanov, uh, fine, it's fine, but it's, like, probably comparable to Greenskin. Steel Dancer is so hard to activate. The weapon is fine. The, uh, the Spell Cleave weapon, the 4-mana four 4-2, four is fine, but Cutting Class is going to be hard to make work. I'm surprised that there wasn't enough here, but I tried building the deck, too, and I couldn't make it happen. It's it's definitely interesting, but you know what I figured out after going over like doing this podcast. What's that, Zach? Everything seems broken. Like every class, like seems kind of busted and th- like has potential to be insane. Maybe except for a couple. But I said it before. I think I said it on the Vicious Syndicate Discord that if somebody came from the future and he told me, Zach. Class X ended up being nerfed. That X, you can fill it with about seven names of classes. And I would believe him. Because there are so many things that look potentially insane. That it's very difficult to predict what's going to be the most busted thing. There's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of variables that we have to take into consideration. And it's pretty impossible to do that. So it's pretty impossible to to make correct prediction, predictions there. It's already impossible to do predictions uh, for every expansion because there's so many variables. But when you have so many potentially busted interaction in so many classes, trying to figure out what's going to be beat them all is very, very difficult. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that what ends up happening is that these things end up even and out. And for every action, there's a reaction. And for every busted interaction, there's a specific interaction that counters that. And I hope that we end up in that situation where feel things feel powerful and cool, but answerable. So look forward to trying everything. Honestly, I have no idea. I want to copy myself. I want to duplicate myself so I can play in different computers and play different decks at the same time. Because I have no idea what to queue up in first game. That decision is like, what am I going to queue up? I have no idea. The set is so synergistic and so creative. There are a lot of designs here that we haven't seen in this form before. The dual class cards are kind of a, a very new territory. I agree with you in the sense that it seems like this is the continuation of the redefinition of the game's base power level. There are so many cool synergies that we all want to try. I'm both nervous and excited at the same time. Because you push it too far then you end up, you're playing with fire, and you have these really, really powerful decks and everything needs to tone down. But if you hit it just right, it's going to be so much fun to play. I really hope they land there, but I'm glad they're pushing the envelope a little bit. I like it, the fact that they're pushing the envelope, because you want to feel like you're playing a powerful deck. You want that that rush. Uh, when you when you play a lot of watered-down cards, it's, it's not fun. And you don't want to limit 
uh, the designers. You want them to be able to push the limits on things because that's when the game, I think, is at its peak. When everything feels broken but isn't actually broken, right? When when things feel powerful but they're actually well-rounded or they they have an interaction that works well against them. I'm really hoping, I'm really, really hoping that there won't be any balance changes. There won't be any need for balance changes because I feel like if this expansion ends up being, yeah, there are decks are allowed to be powerful and there will be probably a best deck. But if it ends up working right, then this expansion is going to be hella fun because, again, the synergies, the packages of all of these classes just look really clean. Just look really compelling gameplay, potentially. So I'm really hoping that my concerns, if there are concerns, are not going to transpire and things end up, it's going to be a blast when the, the expansion launches. And again, I really want to copy myself because I have oh, no yeah. idea what to queue up. What am I, I going to queue up the first game? Like It's such a decision. All right, so make a call right now. If you could only play one deck, if you could play one deck right now, right this minute, what would be the first one you'd queue up? Oof. Uh, probably the handlock. Yeah. Probably the handlock. You know, uh, back in classic, there were two decks that I uh, fell in love with that I really got me to play the game more seriously. And the first was Miracle Rogue, and the second one was Handlock. So whenever Handlock's back, uh, I'm in. Good choices. In before Handlock has a forty percent win rate. The next week's report. It's okay. Listen, it's week one. You're allowed to get away with playing suboptimal decks. As long as you play them well, you'll be fine. Yeah, let's, let's, let's remind people that the best deck in the theorycrafting streams of Ashes of Outland was the devastating Highlander Demon Hunter that was proceeded to see play for the next two months and have like a under 40% win rate uh, during that time. So so don't don't bank on theorycrafting streams. It the meta is gonna be different than what you saw then there, and nothing nothing replaces uh, the experimentation that happens when millions of Hearthstone players enter the game at the same time and trying to define the meta. Yes, and as an official warning, do not dust anything and do not make irresponsible crafting decisions. If you can hold off on pressing the dust extra button. Then you should, because you never know what they're going to change. And Blizzard has come out in interviews and said, if they need to move quickly, they will move quickly. Uh, if you, The longer you can wait two, three weeks without doing the dust extra button, you have a good chance of getting something back. But I am similarly hopeful as you, Zach. I, on the one hand, I hope they don't nerf anything and that the expansion is balanced and it it's, looks like a, an Angoro early on. That's the dream, right? Yeah, I want an Angoro. But that's only happened really one time. And on the other hand, anytime there's a deck with Sinister Strike in it, something gets nerfed. 100% of the time. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be surprised if that's the deck that ends up being nerfed. We'll see. On day one, I am playing Secret Passage until they take it away from me. And I, if we get to Cold Blood people again, I just want to get them. Just want to get them. Maybe, maybe you need to play Prep and Cold Blood in that deck. I don't know. I've seen the one that we're theorycrafting. The one that I'm running on day one is lower curve. The one that the I'm lower running, curve. it has six zero mana cards, 18 one mana cards, and six two mana cards. Okay. 
Okay, sounds good. Sounds like yeah. a well-rounded and fleshed-out deck. So if that deck is good, something's got to get nerfed because that's not healthy. But I'm going to play until you, they take every it away class, from Every class right now, almost every class, I look at it and I look at the potential. I'm seeing I'm not going to be surprised if that gets nerfed. But yeah. hey, the best scenario is that nothing needs to be nerfed and nothing gets nerfed. Yeah. And either way, on day one, I, I already want to load up all 30 of these decks. The best case scenario is they double their deck slots. That is the best case scenario. Thank you for the extra deck slots, Team 5. Thank you. Yes. And that's going to do it for Episode 9. We're so excited for the set. We hope you are too. We will hopefully have a report a week after the set comes out on August 13th. Zach, any final thoughts? Let's do this. That's my final thought. You rotated. You can't Leroy anymore. Which I'm grateful for, I think, because the past four months with Leroy and Demon Hunter wouldn't have been the most fun thing. Maybe. Possibly. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Big thanks to Steven Sensei for an intro and outro. Thank you so much for Team 5 for making a really cool set for us to talk about. We'll see you all in the ladder. Have a great week. The Data Reaper Podcast is an official production of Vicious Syndicate. Don't forget to sign up and contribute your game data to improve the quality of the weekly Data Reaper report. Instructions are available on our website, along with lots of other weekly content at viciousyndicate.com. Thank you to all of our patrons and data contributors for proving their strength in numbers.